Welcome to Beyond the Complexity, where Utah Valley Institute young adults and teachers share their inspiring stories about getting past their complexities and sharing about their struggles, trials, and blessings in discovering their relationship with Christ. I'm your host for the non-student interviews, Tyson Barton. Welcome to Beyond the Complexity, where we try to help you find clarity beyond the complexities of life. Today, we have our guest here, Brother Harris, with us, Brother Mike Harris. Um, we're excited to hear from him today, and he's got a lot of complexities that he's been through in his life and um, things that uh, insights that he wants to share with us. So uh, first, if you could introduce yourself, Brother Harris, um, a little bit about yourself, where you're from, and and uh, what brought you here to the Institute. Thanks for having me, Tyson. Mm-hmm. I spent... 20 years teaching seminary, and then seven years ago, they asked me to come here to Utah Valley Institute of Religion, and it's, these 27 years have been a dream. I, I love working for the church educational system. Mm-hmm. It's been a blast. A um, little bit about me, uh, grew up in Orem. I, I am living in the house that my grandpa built for uh, his daughter, my mom, and my kids are fourth-generation Oramites. Um, went to Mountain View High School here in Orem. Went on a mission to Torreo in Mexico. Came back, went to BYU, taught at the MTC. And then, yeah, like I said, 27 years now as an educator for the church. What other, I don't know what other kind of stuff yeah. you'd like to know. Yeah, uh, how many, uh, you tell us about your oh, family. Oh, yeah. So uh, have six kids. Um, they've all moved out now, except for my 13-year-old. So we still have one at home, and okay. one's married. She got married this past summer and love my kids. Mm-hmm. Two are adopted from Haiti, and they're all working hard and looking forward to being with them. Here with Thanksgiving coming up. And yeah. yeah. Awesome. My wife's from Canada, uh, but did high school in Placerville, California, and she's a, a lawyer, does wills, estates, and trusts. And hmm. She's amazing. Um, yeah, that's a little bit about me. Awesome. Well, we're just going to jump right into it. Uh, Brother, Brother Harris, we talked a little bit of before about temple attendance and what that meant for you and... Uh, um, kind of what that looked like for you and maybe the struggles and, uh, you know, the complexities you went through there. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I always wanted to be a good boy. And so listening to the prophets encourage us to go to the temple. And, and so I would, but for not just years, but for decades, I tried to be consistent. I would go and, if I'm honest, I, I'd feel bored and I'd be confused I mean, I never walked out of the temple after doing an endowment session or ceilings or initiatory, mm-hmm. feeling like, oh, that was a complete waste of time. I, I, yeah. I, I subtly felt like, okay, Heavenly Father was proud of me, but still, there was a lot of confusion. And why isn't this like more, not magical, but more sublime? Because everybody's always talking mm-hmm. about how wonderful it is. And, and I'm like, mm, I just don't know if I'm quite, I'm not seeing it. And and I'd be confused, and I'd have specific, everybody's like, "You got to go with the question." Yeah, I'm going with the question, 
And and then sometimes I'd even ask the temple workers, hey, what's what does this symbolize? What's going on with this? And I would get this most random answers. Mm-hmm. And or sometimes they'd be like, you just need to have faith or you need to pray about it. You know, and I didn't want to punch anybody in the temple, but I kind of felt like, like, yeah, yeah. it just increased the frustration. And then I thought, well, maybe I'm just not worthy enough. Mm-hmm. So yeah, a lot of complexity there, a lot of frustration going there, but I, I, I stuck with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Would you like me to tell you a little yeah. bit how I was able to? Yeah, yeah. So tell us, I mean, uh, first of all, it just sounds like you went for years. That's a, that's a big Decades. commitment. Decades. Yeah, and uh, that that sounds like a, a lot of work, a lot of, uh, and I, I love that you're bringing this up because I don't think this is brought up often. That uh, sometimes it's hard to stay awake or, or hard to, to pay attention when um, you've you you know been through it a lot of times and, and seen maybe the same things over and over again. So yeah, tell us about some of those things that did uh, bring you clarity in that process. Yeah, those that have been endowed, you know that in the temple they show Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3 through a film. And the film, I don't know, I've never timed it, 30 minutes, 45 minutes or so, mm-hmm. showing the creation of the earth and the fall of Adam and Eve. And I'm just like, okay, everybody tells me that I'm supposed to be able to see and understand Jesus Christ more. And I'm 45 minutes or so into that, and I'm like, okay, I believe that God created the bears and the lions and the grass and the trees. Mm-hmm. And I'm just, but you know what, I'm not seeing I believe Jesus created all that, but that's, I got to keep seeing this for the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's got to be something more. I'm not seeing it. And the fall of Adam, okay, the woman's deceived Adam. I'm just, where's Jesus? Mm-hmm. I mean, he's here and there, but he's not prominent. Yeah. And I'm not feeling any increase in my relationship. To, and I'm just confused. Well, I was asked in my employment to give a presentation to all the seminary and institute teachers in the Valley. This would have been years ago, maybe about oh, 10 years ago. And so I spent maybe a hundred hours, maybe more, mm-hmm. prepping for this presentation. And I am studying everything I can about the fall of Adam and Eve. Because I'm just seeing all kinds of different interpretations. Yeah. Even amongst my own colleagues. For instance, was Eve deceived? Uh, yes or no? Well, in the Hebrew, it, it just... Yeah. I'm hearing all kinds of different interpretations. I'm just like, you know what? I don't even care what the answer I just want to know what the answer is here. Yeah. So I, I was digging in. I gave the presentation. And I felt like I learned a lot, and it helped my temple experience. But I'm still feeling the frustration until mm-hmm. one day. Well, so I'm really drilling deep on, okay, was Eve deceived? And what's going on there? And... Let me take you, can I take you through my, yeah, my yeah, walk yeah. you through my, because at the end of this journey that I'm going to share with you real quick is when I started to see Jesus Christ. And I felt like you, mm-hmm. after the, the spiritual sweat and tears, the light started coming. Mm-hmm. So I'm thinking, so was Eve deceived? And I'm reading Genesis chapter three, the woman said, the serpent beguiled me and I did eat. And I'm looking at the word beguiled. I'm looking at it in the original Hebrew. Mm-hmm. And it means duped. She was tricked. She, out of her own mouth, says, yep, I was deceived. I'm like, Mm -hmm. okay. But then I get to the New Testament, and Paul writes an epistle to Timothy, and he says, Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. Okay. Eve (laughs) admitted it. Paul admits she's deceived. Now, I know a lot of the feminists, they're not liking that, Mm -hmm. you know, and 
But I'm like, okay, but if that's what the scriptures say, great. But then yeah. I start reading what modern prophets say. Because mm-hmm. frankly, they're the ones that have the priesthood keys to declare doctrine, mm-hmm. even more so than the canon, right? They're the ones who can yep. interpret it. And I'm starting reading quotes like from Elder Holland. He mentions that Adam and Eve had a full knowledge of the plan of salvation prior to eating the forbidden fruit. Huh. Mm. Full knowledge. She's pretty educated. That if you have a full knowledge, that's that's kind of tricky to get duped. I guess you could. You could get beguiled or deceived, but that'd be true. And then President Nelson says, uh, here I got it right here. We celebrate Eve with her far-reaching vision of our Heavenly Father's plan who initiated what we call the fall, her wise and courageous choice and Adam's supporting decision, moving God's plan of happiness forward. And I'm like, I'm reading what modern prophets say. She's not deceived. <laughs> We're celebrating it. Uh, Elder Holland goes on to say... These terrible risks of sorrow and death were facts Adam and Eve were willing to face in order that men might be. They were willing to transgress, catch this, knowingly and conscientiously. Hmm. Anyhow, I could give more quotes. I'm just like, okay, so the Bible, and then I'm thinking, well, maybe it's because the Bible isn't translated correctly, but there's no JSTs on those. Mm -hmm. So the Bible says she's deceived. Modern prophets say she's not. And then the complexity increases. Because I go to Restoration Scripture, Book of Mormon. Mm Mm-hmm. And it says twice in the Book of Mormon, the serpent beguiled our first parents. Not mm. just Adam, and not just both of them were deceived. Even though Paul said that the man wasn't, but now the Book of Mormon saying that he actually was. Okay, the complexity is just getting yeah. thicker. And my frustration. Anyhow, I finally, I don't know what, how this question came to me, but a question came to my mind that somehow, I'd probably been told this dozens of times before, but it had never registered. Mm-hmm. But one day it registered to me that I had to ask this certain question, and it unlocked this ambiguity, this complexity, this tension. The question is simply this, and this started, and this is where the Lord started to help me see the Savior in the temple. I had to ask myself the question, is what I'm seeing in the endowment on the screen, or what I'm reading in the scriptures in Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3, is it historical or is it symbolic? Mm -hmm. That question changed everything. That's when the light started to come line upon line. Can I I give you a couple examples, Tyson? Um, Let me show you what I mean. Love to hear it. Well, like, so the, the endowment comes from the Old Testament world. We know, we believe that Moses wrote Genesis. Genesis 1, 2, and 3, and that's what's depicted. Yep. That's a highly symbolic world. And so, for instance, when the children of Israel were murmuring in the wilderness and the poisonous snakes came and they started biting people, and if you just looked at the brazen serpent that was lifted on the pole, then you could be healed, right? Is that story real history or is it symbolic? Mm -hmm. And I started analyzing that. Because sometimes people read stories in the Bible, especially the Old Testament, like, well, that's a little far-fetched. <laughs> yep. You know, Noah and the Ark, Jonah and the There's just so many, yeah. right? And I started, well, is it historical or is it symbolic? Well, the answer is yes. It's probably based on history, but primarily and most importantly, I got to see the symbolism. If I don't see the symbolism, I miss the point. I got to see that brazen serpent symbolizing Jesus being lifted up on the cross, mm-hmm. Right. Uh, another example with the law of Moses. They are slaughtering all kinds of animals. 
did they really historically do that? Or is that just purely symbolic? Well, yeah, both. Mm-hmm. But if I don't see the symbolism, I'm totally missing the mark. If I don't see oh, all these different animals, that's it's pointing me to Jesus Christ's atonement. Anyhow, and I started going through, yeah. even Noah and the ark, for analytical minds, the complexity just, man, talk about a faith crisis. <laughs> I mean, I get it. God can do anything, but we know the exact measurements of the ark, mm-hmm. right? The whole world being flooded. There's just so many problems yeah. with that. Yep. From an analytical and scientific, and yeah, you can just like dismiss it and say, well, if you have faith, you know, God can do anything, but it's still so problematic. But then when I started seeing, I started reading it and looking for the symbolism behind it, guess what I saw? The dimensions and the description of the ark clearly point to the same dimensions and elements of the tabernacle of Moses and the temple of Solomon. Hmm. So while there might be, I think the Noah and the ark story is rooted in history. Yeah. Most importantly and primarily, it's a symbolic text trying to teach us when all hell breaks loose. Mm-hmm. Oh, and there's violence and destruction. Where are you going to find safety? In the house of the Lord. Yep. And then how much of it's clearly scientific and historical? Well, we'll find out someday. Mm-hmm. Right? But that's not what the scriptures are written for. They're written for a theological message. Mm-hmm. And I started to see it through the symbol. Okay. So that's kind of a, let's go back to the temple endowment and Adam and Eve. And was Eve deceived? Well, I'm looking at the temple prep manual, and, you know, before you go to the the temple to receive your endowments for the first time, you're supposed to take the six or seven classes to get you ready. I think the most important statement in this manual, it's called Endowed from High, says, quote, the characters depicted, the physical setting, the clothing worn, the signs given in all the events covered in the temple, and I would add in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, are symbolic, I think for so many decades, I was so caught up in the literal historical lens when I'd go to the temple, Mm -hmm. and I wasn't looking enough at the symbolism. And that just brought all kinds of problems. It gets weird. Uh, Adam's created from the dust. Uh, (laughs) So when it's time for father and son's outing, who's Adam going with? (laughs) Cup of dirt? When it's time for daddy-daughter date, who's Eve going with? Mr. Rib? (laughs) <laughs> you know, it's just clearly, and I started thinking more symbolically, and yeah. it kind of put on hold the historical aspect. Now, don't get me wrong. I am not suggesting for a second that there wasn't a Garden of Eden. Mm-hmm. There wasn't a woman, a historical woman named Eve and a historical man named Adam. It's rooted in history. But from there, it blossoms yeah. into this amazing, inspired, beautiful temple text that testifies so powerfully of Jesus Christ. For example... They're found naked. And, you know, huh, you can get caught up in the literalness of that. And that is very distracting. Yeah. Especially when you're going for the first time. You're like, well, it's a good <laughs> thing all the bushes and trees are <laughs> strategically placed. But, yeah. And I started thinking about the symbolism and reading what scholars say about it. And it's just so beautiful. It's, it's, I, I felt the Savior teaching me the importance of, in a marriage, whether you're dating and or you're just engaged or you've been married for decades, you have to be transparent. You mm-hmm. need to be naked in the sense that you can't bring secrets to a celestial marriage. 
And granted, that that thought's kind of painful because we all have things that we're ashamed of. The, the verse says, the man and the woman were naked and they were not ashamed. But then you're like, well, but if I if I divulge everything, if I have no secrets, sometimes that's shameful. Yeah. But the Lord doesn't want us to be ashamed of anything. So thank heavens through the blood of the lamb, we can look our spouse in the eyes and say, yeah, maybe I had this or that struggle. Mm-hmm. That's not me anymore. And you can feel that. And she'll feel that confidence. And there's just something so intimate, something so beautiful when you're, when your marriage, where you just totally trust each other and you can confide in each other with everything, good mm-hmm. and bad. And because of the Savior's blood, you can go to the altar of the temples and you can be married and have com- look them in the eyes and be completely confident without any shame. That's a, that's a beautiful way to see the Savior's power in our lives. That's just one example. Well, still though, I had this complexity with, so is Eve really deceived or not? Mm-hmm. Because again, not to be repetitious, but this is so important. The Bible says, who was deceived? The woman. Mm-hmm. Modern prophets clearly and repeatedly have taught that she was not. And yet the Book of Mormon says she was deceived, but also Adam. And so I'm like, okay, what am I going to do with this complexity? And then one day I was reading in Genesis chapter 3, verse 24, and it says, Therefore shall a man, that's Adam, leave his father. And I'm looking at this through a literal historical lens. Leave his father, okay, heavenly father, and his mother, okay, he left heavenly mother, and shall cleave unto his wife. He's going to cleave unto Eve, and they, Adam and Eve, shall be one flesh. Okay, from a literal point of view, that makes perfect sense. They're going to be one sexually, financially, socially, spiritually, Mm -hmm. all aspects of their life. They are going to be a team. Okay, beautiful. But then, this is where it changed everything for me, Tyson. Mm -hmm. I went back to the New Testament, and Paul quotes this exact same verse from Genesis 3. But notice what, after he quotes it, he says this. And this began to change my life. He said, this verse is a great mystery. This is Ephesians chapter 5, verse 31 and 32. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Hmm. So then I went back to that same verse, Genesis chapter 3, and I reread it by inserting the symbolism. And now watch what happens, Tyson. Tell me what you think. For this cause shall take out the man, Adam, mm-hmm. but instead insert, according to Paul, the man symbolizes Jesus. Mm-hmm. Therefore, for this cause shall Jesus leave his father and his mother and shall be joined unto his wife. Who does he, who does he get joined with? His wife. Who Paul says, Eve symbolizes the church of Jesus Christ. Hmm. Yeah. And then it finishes by saying, and they too shall be one flesh. Jesus and his church become one flesh in the, in the idea that we become a team as we strive to gather Israel. Mm-hmm. And I start feeling the, the thrill in my soul. And I feel the, but it came through the symbolism. Mm-hmm. Does that make yeah. sense? Yes. No, no, no. Tell me. So 
going through this um, this process, this was decades, as you said. How did it uh, How did it feel as you discovered these these new things? Um, and it seems like it wasn't all at once. It wasn't overnight that you uh, that these complexities were answered or or whatever. But what? How did it feel to go through this process of decades of uh, discovering? Um, what the temple meant to you and what, you know, some of those uh, Adam and Eve and, and all of the stories in the temple meant to you? What a great question. Well, for when I was in the, the thick of it, there were some times where it was, it was dark. It was long, and I felt like a hypocrite because I would go teach my seminary classes and here I'm testifying of the beauty of the temple and I believed the temple. Mm-hmm. I, don't get me wrong. I was always a believer, and I was pretty consistent going. I felt the power when I was sealed to my wife on May 14th, 1998. Mm-hmm. I'd had little bits and pieces of light come to me. I, I knew the temples, but by and large, I just felt like, wow, this is... But then when I started seeing the symbolism that I just got done explaining, going to the temple became a lot more rich, and I felt like my relationship with Jesus Christ was being deepened. Like, for instance, going back to when Eve says, the serpent beguiled me and I did eat. I'm like, wait a minute. But prophets have said that she wasn't beguiled. But then I'm like, it's, I got to read that verse. I can't read that verse historically. Mm -hmm. Historically, that verse doesn't make any sense. Mm -hmm. That'd be a false reading. I have to read that verse symbolically. What it means is the church was beguiled. And we each of us every day are beguiled by the serpent. Yeah. That's what that verse is about. But the historical Eve, she knew exactly what she was doing and she acted in faith, courage, and wisdom. So I'm just like, oh, that makes a lot more sense. And then when Paul says Adam was not deceived, I'm like, oh, of course Jesus wasn't ever deceived. <laughs> He's talking on a symbolic level there. Mm-hmm. And so I just, the understanding started to come in and bits and pieces as I kept on going back on a consistent basis. I started, I'd go and I'd listen to the endowment. I'd look it through at a historical lens. And that was good. That's helpful. But then I'd go back and I'm like, every time Eve was talking or doing, I'd think of her representing the church, us members of the restored church, and I'd look at everything Adam was saying and doing, okay, how does that relate to to Jesus? And I'm just like, wow. Adam is told after he eats the forbidden fruit, because of what you've done, thorns and thistles will be brought unto you. I'm thinking, no way. Mm -hmm. That's exactly what happened to the Savior. He carried the crown of thorns. And then people might argue, well, you're just trying to bend your theology or your belief to make it fit. Mm-hmm. But I would argue, we know that Moses was a special witness of Jesus Christ. He's seen in vision the ministry, the mortal ministry of Jesus Christ. He's seen the Savior's suffering and what he's going to go through. And Moses was inspired to create this powerful, beautiful temple text, if you will, or this endowment, not to teach us about some historical Adam. Yes, that is part. Yeah. But more importantly, to help us see Jesus through this symbolism. I love it. 
I think that's uh, the the number one best piece of advice I was given before going through the temple for the first time myself is it's symbolic. <laughs> you know, temple prep and everything was great, and I felt the spirit going through that. But uh, I think that one piece of advice is what I held on to throughout that first time going through is this is symbolic. Remember that it's symbolic, and it's. And I had been told that Tyson a hundred times too, mm-hmm. but I wish somebody would have said, "Hey, Mike." It's symbolic, and notice how Adam symbolizes Jesus. It's symbolic to teach you about Jesus, mm-hmm. not symbolic just to teach you random things. Yeah. Like, I was on BYU campus just a few months ago, and the sweet lady, she's probably in her 30s, her husband's a bishop. I, I was eavesdropping. She was talking with somebody. She says, there's that verse in Genesis chapter 3, and it's also in the temple. It's awful. I'm like, what is she talking about? And she read Genesis chapter 3, verse 16. And it says, it's when the Lord says to Eve after she ate the forbidden fruit, in sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. <laughs> and she's just like, that's, man, no, husband, no man's going to rule over me. What's with that? Yeah. And I'm just like, reread it. Don't look at it literally. Yeah. And if you reread it, look, can we reread it real quick? Yeah, yeah. Let's insert the symbolism according to Paul. Mm-hmm. In sorrow, the church shall bring forth children. And I'm like, huh. Well, this isn't just talking about the female gender. It's talking about men and women in Christ's restored New Testament church. In what way do I experience sorrow as I try to bring forth children? What? But then you think about every time you try to do missionary work and you tell people, hey, we want you to read 3rd Nephi chapter 11, and and when we come back next time, we'll say, they're not even reading 3rd Nephi 11. They're hardly, and they say they go to church, they don't go to church, you know? Mm-hmm. Talk about the sorrow, trying to bring forth God's children, right? Yep. And so I'm like, okay, that makes sense. Let's keep going. And thy desire shall be to thy husband. The church's desire shall be to Jesus Christ. That makes sense. Yeah. There's nothing uh, There's nothing sexist there. Mm-hmm. And then the last one is my favorite. And he shall rule over thee. It doesn't mean that because the man in the house, he holds the priesthood, he calls the shots. Not at all. We know from modern-day prophets that the husband and wife need to be equal partners. Mm-hmm. But here, the Scripture's talking about how Jesus will rule over church mm-hmm. it's not president nelson right it's Jesus. and it, it just relieves that complexity and it increases my faith in jesus christ yeah love that thank you so much um i th- i think uh many people have found complexity in their temple worship and uh it's maybe something that's not brought to light as much as as you just did so thank you for that um you kind of alluded to this as you were talking about the temple of, of marriage and, and how that helped you in some ways um, uh, to see your marriage and maybe in a different lens. You talked about also wanting to give advice to, um, you know, finding finding that eternal companion, um, you know, how to find that eternal companion and, and what to, to know as you do that. Sure. Yeah, I... I got back from serving in the mission in Mexico, and I thought, oh, yeah, maybe in another year I'll be married. Well, I didn't get married till I was almost 27, and 
you know, when I turned 25, I felt like I needed to go to a therapist. There had to be something because I wanted to get married. Yeah. I thought I was an okay guy. Um, I'm sure I had plenty of quirks, but things weren't going my way and I was feeling the pressure. And anyhow, I finally found my wife, who's now my wife, Clea. She was teaching seminary at Pleasant Grove High School and I was teaching at Orem Junior Seminary. And one day, and I was whooped. And we hit it off. I would say it was love at first sight. But same time, I'm like, this is for eternity. I need some kind of reassurance. Not that I need to see an angel. I just need the still small voice to confirm that this is this is good. Mm-hmm. And talk about the the wrestle. I would fast. I would talk to good people. And I remember a week or two before I even got married, I went to... I was freaking out. We were engaged. I decided yeah. I was going to marry her, even though I hadn't had any distinct, clear confirmation. Yeah. I, I, I didn't know when my bishop, Bishop Skousen, he's, he lives here in Orem. Mm-hmm. Um, bless his heart. I didn't know when he was going to leave for work, so I was outside his house early in the morning just waiting for him to leave, and I was going <laughs> to <laughs> get him. Well, he came out, and he, I remember he hopped in my Ford Ranger truck, and I'm like, Bishop, am I making the right choice? And he just laughed. He said, oh, Mike. You're Clea's great. You've made a great choice. You'll be fine. I got to go to work. And I'm just like, what kind of bishop? You don't even care, you know? <laughs> and he gets out. You know, what I've, I'll just fast forward. I guess what I've learned is, so what's President Nelson's teaching lately in general conference? He says, you get to choose who you want to spend eternity with. Mm-hmm. I mean, sure, we should be prayerful. And we should fast in our decision. But at the end of the day, if you want to find true love, we've got to do what Elder Bednar has repeatedly. You create it. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter if you marry the most wealthy, spiritual, kind, the perfect pack for a spouse. Mm-hmm. You want an eternal marriage? It's a choice. You go to work. Mm-hmm. And how do you go to work? This is what I had to learn. Um you, you, when the person you haven't seen, you drop everything when you get home and you stand up and you go greet them. And now sometimes we're really busy and maybe that interaction's only going to be 10 seconds. You look them in the eyes, how are you doing? I'm really busy right now, but hey, let's, right? Mm-hmm. But you, if I'm teaching a class here at UVU Institute, I see my wife's calling, no apologies. I'm taking that phone call and I'll pick it up and say, hey, babe, I'm in a class right now. You okay? Mm-hmm. And, 99% of the time, she's like, oh, I forgot. I'm sorry. Talk to you later. Bye. Yeah. But she's got to know, because we've made that covenant. Anyhow, when you do that day after day, where you connect with each other, and you look each other in the eyes, and you show that kind of respect, you are creating a celestial marriage. Mm-hmm. It's these common courtesies. At mealtime, you, you establish, you think about how much time, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, you could end up spending and you create these traditions where you sit down and you talk to each other and you listen to each other and you ask questions and you're creating the love and you make that choice. Yeah. And if I'm honest, I look back, I think the Lord was, as I was prayerful, he was subtly guiding me along that, hey, this is this could be a good choice. Yeah. But I never felt a distinct, no doubt about it, confirmation. There was a lot of faith and I think the Lord just wants you, hey, you make a choice. And I'll help you. Mm-hmm. We go to work, and you create the love. Yeah, I love that. I've uh, 
I've heard many people uh, waiting for that uh, confirmation to to pull the trigger on a marriage or to to move forward in in a relationship. What uh, what would you say to those people that are going through that 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 maybe feel um, just a little uh, you know not secure about their relationship or not secure about that situation? What would, what advice would you give to them? Whether they married or they're engaged, they're en- engaged or even they're married, just dating or just dating. Mm-hmm. Are they head over heels for the person? <laughs> I would say no. Well, then, then they'd call it off. Mm-hmm. But if you find somebody, you're like, you know what? I think I want to take the leap. I want to do. I want to sacrifice. I want to give my mm-hmm. my life to this person. Then go create the love. And after you get to the point where you're ready to propose or maybe you're already engaged, you got to take Elder Mill L. Anderson's advice in his book, The Divine Gift of Forgiveness. And what we were talking about earlier, you, you've got to learn to be completely transparent with that person mm-hmm. and learn not to be ashamed, right? No secrets. And then that vulnerability creates this sweet intimacy mm-hmm. and the loneliness that we... That's like some maybe maybe that's the worst pain. Mm-hmm. Not having a friend, it starts to leave. It's not the beauty of the person you're dating, even though that is fun and that's exciting. But it's it's the emotional, the spiritual, the conversational intimacy where you can share anything with that person and you feel their loyalty and that trust and that non-judgmental love. I mean, sometimes they'll call you out on things, mm-hmm. right? Hey, come on, that's you're being an idiot right now. But it's just as you go through these difficult conversations about anything and everything, that is so fun to have that kind of a relationship with someone, and that's fu- that's I think what heaven's made of. Sometimes we think heaven is once you die, if you're a good boy or a good girl, then God's going to get a magic wand and boom, you live. Ha- I think God wants to bring a little heaven right here, right now. Mm-hmm as we live by the laws that he's established, keep the law of chastity and be loyal, be faithful with each give it sacrifice for each other. Be forgiving, be patient. Mm-hmm. That's heaven. Yeah. I think I love the principle. I think highlighted in there that vulnerability equals, you know, vulnerability, I guess in the right place, right time can equal connection. Oh, you, you said that really. Nice. I love that. Yeah. That was great. Um, Thank you, thank you, Brother Harris. What what is uh, what it what in your life has has made you find clarity beyond all of the complexities that you've been through? Or how did you word the question? Yeah, what how have you found clarity beyond the complexities of life? This is gonna sound like a uh, a canned or a trite mm-hmm. answer. But it, it's not. It, it really keeping the covenants. At least, I mean, there's been a hundred times where I haven't. But sincerely striving to keep the covenants I've made with Jesus Christ. And when things are dark and I have questions and about church history, the polygamy, blacks and the priesthood, why is the temple not sparkling for me? Or why is my 
marriage not feeling very good right now or why, why don't whatever the darkness or when I've, I've had my dad die I've had two my children die whatever dark times you go through I found if I, you know what I'll just hold on to my covenants I'm going to stay loyal to those through the good times and the bad times I find that the Lord he he helps me yeah. through those times I love that Jesus Christ is the answer yeah and that almost it, sounds like a bumper sticker, yeah, cop out answer. But I would, I would add, it, it, he is the answer. But not just him; it's fidelity to the covenants we've made through his church. Yeah. Yep. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Appreciate it. We'll go ahead and cut it off there. Thank you for listening. If you have any questions or would like to be interviewed, please contact us at beyondthecomplexity at gmail.com and give us a follow on Instagram. Our username is beyondthecomplexity. If you would like to get Institute credit for listening to this podcast, email us your name and your birthday so we can get you registered. If you would like to help out with our Institute and special projects like this, please reach out. We could always use more help in the marketing team at the Institute, and there's so many opportunities to volunteer. Also, if you are a young adult in Utah County, join us here at the Institute and sign up for our class. See you soon.